While this podcast contains little to no explicit material, it is sprinkled with some uncensored swears. Listener discretion is advised. Canon Films. The home of high-powered, high-voltage motion picture entertainment. With the screen's biggest spectacles, brightest stars, and boldest lineup of explosive entertainment. We're taking motion picture excitement over the edge and your box office over the top. We're Canon Films, and we're Dynamite. I'd kind of like to step in and do the introduction, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Take it. This is a cast that has been something that I've wanted us to do for some time. Um, it seems like there's a tradition that after I get a new job, I bring on someone uh, that I've uh, wanted to do an interview with. But we actually had this interview set up while I was uh, between job, thankfully. A couple of years ago, I got a tablet for the first time. Really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with it was get some books on it. And the very first book that I picked up was a book that I was really excited to read. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1. A book that covered the first few years of Canon Studios history. And if you're not familiar with Canon, well, you're going to get a crash course today. Um, and it was a book that I was really excited by. So that was the very first thing that I bought for my tablet. And today, there is a book plate on the back of the tablet that was uh, signed by the author of this book. And it is my distinct honor today to have him on as a guest. Uh, he has uh, expanded to a second even larger, really expansive volume, writer of the uh, Canon Film Guides Volumes 1 and 2, with 3 in the offing. Austin Trunick, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You know, I, I want, I've done a review on these books, uh, and I will uh, send a link to it. Um, I reviewed them back in May. They are phenomenal reads. If you have ever wanted to study a single studio's history, up and down, these two books are really tremendous resources. Dense, detailed, some of the most thoroughly researched. These are truly reference-quality books. Um, these are library-grade. If you're a college student and you find yourself dealing with one of their films for a film class, you need these books. They're really tremendous. Film guides are something that we all consult all the time. They're tremendous resources, but I thought it'd really be fun to have our guest on today and just talk about it and just talk about why does Canon hold such a unique place in our pop culture lexicon to the point that Walmart sells a DVD set of just Canon's, of like the best of Canon. And it's actually a great set, I will point out. Walmart has a 10 film set that's really good. Yeah, that, that set, as far as uh, entertainment value for 
for the I think the eighteen dollars they they sell it for full price. You it's it's hard to beat. And I mean, if you want to measure it by the number of explosions or rocket launcher blasts or something, you definitely get more of those for your money. <laughs> and across those those ten ten films, it, it's it's fun. It's funny because one of the films that they have in there is the documentary on Canon, which is. Bizarrely enough, probably about as much of a canon film as anything I've ever seen in terms of its tone. I am I am fascinated by Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, I was going to ask which canon documentary film, because according to that one, the two producers made their own. Yeah, that was when they when when Golden Globus, the two heads of canon, were approached by Mark Hartley and his team who who made Electric Boogaloo and asked to participate in that documentary. They actually got back together after not working together for many years to race a documentary of their own out <laughs> be that out before the one that was being made and had all the, the time and effort and love poured into it. Um, which is a very Canon thing to do. That's something that it's the most Canon thing to yeah. do. <laughs> it was extremely funny to see that little, uh, that little text at the end. <laughs> it, it didn't even feel like Hartley was mad at them. Uh huh. Like, no. yeah, respect. <laughs> I think that's probably it's probably an honor to to, yeah. to be ripped off by Golden Globus. And again, I'm not trying to plug another person's work here too much, but if y'all haven't seen Electric Boogaloo, it really is maybe the most fun you'll ever have with a film documentary that isn't best worst movie. I, I tell people too, I was like, if you have any, if you want to know what canon is or you have any interest, check out the dot that documentary first because it's so good and it gives you such a great overview, and you get to see little clips of these films if they're not movies that you're already familiar with as well it's lecture boogaloo is so good and before, before you dive into you know reading thousands of pages about these movies get a great documentary. i kind of love that it's in the walmart set because if someone you know i'm i live in little rock arkansas and i love the idea that someone can be getting dog food which is directly next door to the electronic section see this and then that be one of the films that they get and just imagine what it's going to do to their brain um it's really cool but uh yeah, I guess the, the way that we always get started with the uh, guests is asking, how did you get started and why did you choose this project? I, I ended up studying uh, film, uh, film history and uh, cinema studies, actually. And it was something that I, as a, a, degree, a degree I didn't really use for a little while, but then finally when I, when I got, to, got to it, I, I ended up writing for a lot of online outlets, several different websites, and then a magazine known as Under the Radar magazine which is still around and I still write for pretty frequently. But I wanted something I could work on on my own and something, a project that I could sort of just plug away at my in my spare time. It was right around the time my my first kid was born, my daughter. And this was a time where I was, you know, obviously anyone with kids, since you're keeping weird hours, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> your whole life is turned upside down there. And it's hard to do freelance work, but you're kind of end up with these hours where you know you're just holding a kid or rocking a baby to sleep and things like that so i was looking at projects and i was thinking back in my head i'm like where what why do i love movies so much why where did this where did this begin and thinking back it all for me uh and i think for a lot of people my in in, in my my generation my age age bracket i fell in love with movies during the video store era Oh yes, I, <laughs> I I I grew up in kind of the middle middle of nowhere area of Ohio. Not not fully middle of nowhere, but there was no movie theater nearby. If we wanted to go to a McDonald's, it was twenty minutes away. Movie theater was 35, 40 minutes. So it's just not something I did a lot as a kid. But and in that time, you could rent movies at the gas stations, at the grocery store, mm -hmm. anywhere. We had two video stores 
everywhere that could fit rentals, you could do it. So my entertainment, my my exposure to movies came from going to the video store on Friday nights with my mom or my dad and running a stack of movies. And back then, you know, that's canon was everywhere. <laughs> I, I like to say I say this a lot, but you couldn't spin around in any section of a video store and not knock a canon movie off the shelf just because they they made so many movies at the time and they were very keen. They, they knew a lot about the video market, so they're making sure their videos were there and you could find them easily. And they came in big, beautiful boxes and they had great artwork. And so a lot of these movies I saw with my dad, probably too young. <laughs> he was a big Chuck Norris fan. Um, a few of the Charles Bronson's, the Ninja movies, I could sometimes talk him into. That was more my influence being a Ninja Turtles fan. And Weren't we all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually have the uh, complete DVD set of the uh, 90 ser- of the 87 series, so I get it. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've been trying to revisit with my, my son, who's four, but he's still, like, not quite... He's, he's still in the get, yeah, He'll yeah, the slightly younger kids. He's more of the still the Daniel Tiger age group. But, yeah, but yeah. So, but again, when I was that age, I, you know, <laughs> a little bit older than that, I was watching Chuck Norris movies with my dad. But in any case, that's where that's where my love of movies began. That's where my first exposure to movies began. And over and over, these were canon films. These are movies that I grew up on. And and again, you get you get to hearing about you. This was one years later on, you'd get to where these were released with DVD commentaries and things like that. And you hear people talking about them, the directors, Sam Furstenberg talking about, you know, Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3, The Domination. And you're like, wow, these there are some crazy stories behind these films. And I'm just going to say right now, Sam Furstenberg, the interviews that pervade these books, he is one of the most entertaining fellows I've ever read anything from i he's he's also one of the nicest oh i can tell that immediately like he just comes off as just such a cool guy he is the best the like greatest living ambassador for this like period of filmmaking in my opinion because he also supports projects like mine and so many others there's you can tell he's proud that's the thing that i love Mm -hmm. and he should be because he should be yeah, these movies are so good. They're so entertaining. Even even something I know, Electric Boogaloo, beco- uh, Breaking 2, becomes a punchline that's used a lot. But <laughs> I'm going to say right now, the, the 80s all, when the 80s all over covered Electric Boogaloo, I like that they kind of reclaimed it. They kind of, in that episode, they talk about the fact that, yeah, it's a punchline, but it's also a really great dance movie, and that it's fun. And I liked hearing these two critics that I really respected give it some good praise. It's probably one of the most family-friendly canon movies too. It's one that both of my kids, I've shown it to them, and I'm yeah, they both they both enjoy it. Even my even my little boy who's still too young for to really get into Ninja Turtles <laughs> loved Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo. It's colors and dancing and music, what's not to love? It is just a fantastic name. Like that, like I know it's used primarily as a joke now, but it that's. I have to think that that's only because it's such a fantastic name for a movie, for anything, especially a sequel. Yeah, a lot of times, I mean, Canon was Canon was famous for that. They they coming up with the titles before they really had a a premise or or, <laughs> or or anything anything else attached to it. But yeah, Break Into Electric Boogaloo that that title happened before before they really knew what they were going to do with the sequel, which is I love. That's something I love about this company. Yeah, they were very much a we're going to throw track down honestly behind the train at a lot of times it's 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 just fascinating and 
You mean in front of the train? No, 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 no. They would be. They'd go back and put the track in. They would just be running down. While it was, oh, it was they, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Hence the hence the missing in action movies. <laughs> yeah, Which, they, their their company. They were rarely ahead of a trend, but sometimes they were right, right when it was right when it was peaking, and 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 often they were good at. If they weren't a f- the first movie of its kind to come out, they would be. It would be the first one that would go on cable and the first one available mm-hmm. on video. So, yeah. if you wanted to see Rambo but couldn't get to a movie theater, you could go rent Missing Action One and Two, <laughs> which were in theaters more recently than Rambo. In that case, in a lot of places, you know, I've heard the theory put that James Cameron's script was apparently just all over town, and I, I believe that that's probably what had to have happened. So my. I, I've heard that too. I have I have a theory that is slightly because I've I've talked to James Bruner who wrote Missing in Action. Yes, then. But there was a bestseller at the time, and um, forgive me, I don't I don't know the I don't remember the title offhand. I think it was um, Mission MIA or something. It's it's in the yeah. book. But he it was it was a it was a very popular book, but it was also covered in a lot of things like Reader's Digest and Newsweek and things like that. So. I also I, I I also wonder if a if the same magazines were on the stands at all the dentists in Los Angeles and everybody was reading these same sort of you know the tabloid stories about about this I think I think it was it, it might have just been something that was in everybody's mind because even Un- Uncommon Valor's got a very Uncommon Valor's very, famous thing, yeah uh, and then that was something that Wings Hauser was shopping around years before Cameron's script so. I think I think you also had fighter in the fight that of course we wanted to win we wanted to win Vietnam we wanted to redo Vietnam we wanted to win it can't can't beat that cultural theme it's just it's fascinating to me but you're right Canon they found the pulse uh, hence the ninja movies I'm I'm just endlessly fascinated by the ninja movies they're, yeah they're all of them are entertaining that's <laughs> Canon made made eight ninja movies so which is which is amazing. And it, I would say the probably, I mean, beat by Godfrey Ho, of course. Nobody made as many oh, yes. yeah. ninja movies as him. But yeah, canon. I mean, I I argue in the books that they they started that craze. Really, they, they really made did. it extreme. I mean, I'm especially fascinated by Ninja Three just because of again what a legendary surreal premise it is. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about these books because again, once you had this idea, who was the first person you reached out to? Like, who was the first person that you got your interviews from? I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about how, what was the process like? It was, at the, in the very early phases, a lot of it was going to, finding out who had websites. Um, like, that was, that was my first uh, order of attack. Um, emailing and just asking, you know, hey, this is what I want to do. And a lot of those people early on, I could, I could kind of tell they, had, they didn't have any reason to trust me or believe what I was doing. I'm just a guy who's like, I'm writing a book. You know, they don't, they don't have, there's no reason they should actually believe me or give me that time. So anytime somebody said yes, it was always, it always felt like such a huge, huge win early on. But Sam was one of the first, Sam Furstenberg was one of the very first people who really took it seriously and got on the phone with me for like multiple times for several hours at a time. And it was just incredible. Another person who, I am always extremely grateful to is Catherine Mary Stewart, who I, I talked to her about the Apple, but she was one of the first people who really was a star, a movie star, who's someone who I, I felt that 
you know, I wasn't, I wasn't worth the t- her, her time of day. She, she was happy to get involved and talk to me and I'm grateful. And I think that's, that's something once, once I had talked to people, there were a lot of cases where somebody would say, oh, you should talk to this person. Or after we had had that conversation where the people I talked to would then, you know, sort of pass my name along to their former colleagues and such. So it got easier. It's, it snowballed slowly. And then by the time the second book, while I was working on the second book, it was much easier to actually track people down. I'd, I'd start to hear from people that initially said no or initially never responded to the first book and then were willing to talk to me for the second one. I noticed, I noticed that was a thing throughout the book, actually, was uh, people that doubled back. And, that, and it's, it's really, I'm glad you were able to get those interviews because, again, they're some of the most lively interviews that I've read. Um, just very, you know, how much bigger was the second book than the first one, just for clarity? Though part of why it was bigger, of course, was the output increased. Yeah, yeah. So the book covers four years. The second one, only three, but Canon put out many more films in those three years than they did in their first four under Golden Globus. And yes, yeah, so the first the first book, oh, let me, I have a copy near hand. It's, it's, it's in the high 500s. It's like five, eight, it's, it's in the 500s. And the second book is just over a thousand pages. So it's, it's, it's almost double the size in the, in the print editions. Yeah. And you can feel, you, you can feel the weight so to speak, I read digital copies. Yeah, they, and a lot of that too is also because there are twice as many interviews in the second one. And again, that's I think that was because once the first one came out and people saw that I wasn't, I think, I think, I think pe- these subjects were afraid that I was just here to crack fun at the films or make fun of them and, or, you know, just have fun at a B-movie's expense, which again, I'm a, I'm a huge mystery science theater fan, but those guys- Yeah, as we all they love their they love them they love movies you can you can tell and you know the it's what i was trying to do you know i'll obviously i'll thing out where and the if something is silly or very obvious or but i like to explain why why the effects in superman 4 are are so bad that like there there are reasons for those things i'm i'm and and those stories on how these movies ended up the way they were are usually very interesting and and I think a lot of people are willing to kind of kind of talk about them in that way. You know, if you knew how how tough they had it, how how hard it was to actually make the, some of these films under the conditions and the budgets and the timelines that Canon gave them, it's a wonder that it's a wonder that they're as good as they are. <laughs> you know, you talk about Superman four. That's one that I have a great deal of love for it because, as messy as it is. You can see the good that was there. Um, I'm a huge Superman geek, actually. It's one of my favorite characters. And I love that I can sense that the intentions were good, but the process kind of led to what we got. And it's really well explained in the book. You really understand how that film came to be. Thank you. One thing, if you are anybody who's listening, and if they're ever digging through dollar bins or $2 bins or whatever, whatever they are now at, at, at Comic-Cons, or, or shows the Superman four movie ad- adaptation comic, the DC yes. special that they put out is so wonderful because you can see what Superman four might have looked like had it had another the 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 ten million dollars that originally that more that they were supposed to have and they could have filmed all these scenes and done them with the effects team from the last movies like they originally intended to. Uh, it's 
it that, that it's that's a <laughs> again like, there's no budget in comic books is, is in the same way as movies you for as, as far as special effects but you can really get a sense of what superman 4 would have been like what 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 it might have looked like had had canon not really financially collapsed just <laughs> really in the months and weeks leading into the shooting and as it was happening you know, they were losing more and more budget as they were going had to pull it just to keep the company afloat yeah, and you can really see it because you're right. I have read that adaptation. It is fantastic uh, in that you do really get the glimpse. In fact, a, a web critic I watch who does comic reviews actually covered it and really laid that out. Oh, that's cool. I'll have to seek that out. The Top the Fourth Wall was the name of the show, and it's worth a, it's worth a look. It really is fascinating because at this point in the books, you've covered this period where one of the things I want to point out that I really love that you did is you cover all the franchises linearly. So every single franchise you get to go from start to finish, regardless of if the they fell into the timeline. I really like that. It's really neat. Thank you. That's I. I just hope to avoid redundancies. It was like one of the main things. And it really does show because you really do get to you get to avoid that. It really does make them very clean reads. To some degree, the books are a lot of foreshadowing because, like with Death Wish, you get to Death Wish Five, which they didn't release, um, but. It, it's it's a fascinating because I'm I'm one of the reasons I really want to pick these books up is I'm a student of the death of the theatrical B movie I'm I'm fixated on it I mean we still have our horror obviously today but we don't have B movie B movies and there was a time when you would have movies barnstorm cities and just show up and the the late 90s were kind of the or the early 90s were kind of the death of that and so getting to Death Wish Five felt like we're touching on when Trimark was playing in that game, and I really dug that. I really dug that. I got to see that. Um, my obsession, by the way, was uh, Night of the Demons 2, when, that, when an ad for that showed up in the newspaper in Houston. So that's kind of where my, that's my wellspring. Yeah, it's, that, that, that's, that's an era I'm definitely exploring a lot now as I'm working on Volume 3, because that will really goes through the... Uh, in, in a funny way, I mean, by the end of 87, Canon... Like the canon had already peaked and had they were already on a very, very steep decline as far as the the budgets of the movies they can make, the sort of the size of the movies they can make, and their ability to get them out there. The book three is going to cover a lot of what I mean, it I I have to call it probably the direct to video era. More of their movies were coming out and being in at least in the US sold direct to video and to cable and things like that. And it's it's fun though. Where you don't get the sort of these big gigantic, you don't get the life forces, you don't get over the top and things like that. These big gouty kind of movies. You do get some movies that I feel in here now. I talk to people about them, and maybe they've seen it, maybe they haven't. It just hap- happens to be if 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 their video store had it, their particular video store had a copy of this film. So uh, while while the the movies in volume three probably aren't nearly as well known as the ones in one and two i do hope that canon fans will probably have the hopefully have the chance to discover more that they haven't come across because we are kind of getting into a more more obscure era because they were making making the films quick dirty and fast faster than (laughs) than ever but emphasis dirty and cheap (laughs) i like that you said that about discovering them because that's one of the things i think was so exciting to me about reading these books is Obviously, I knew Masters of the Universe. I knew the Apple. I, I I know the songs to the Apple quite well. I I adore the Apple, and I love that. Every, I love that everyone seems to have so much affection for it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, what I liked about this these books was that you cover everything. 
And you really covered that Canon wasn't exactly the studio I think people think of them as. They had some very diverse projects. And I really admire that this is probably the only book that you're ever going to read where, yeah, death, you know, you're going to read about Death Wish and you're going to read about Cassavetes in the same book. And I love that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's pe- people definitely, uh, if they aren't already aware, Canon had such a wide variety, but they, they, they used these, they, their action movies. This, this is something Menachem Golan would actually be very open about in interviews all throughout the 80s that, that the, you know, they used the Chuck Norris movies to fund, fund their Cassavetes, fund the Altman projects that they did, the Zeffirelli and things like that, Godard. But they, they had, there's a quote that I love from, I believe it's a Newsday or Daily News, Daily News interview with uh, Menachem in, in, I think, early 85, talking about Canon's at a time when they were still sort of building up towards the, the height of their success, how the Philippines wanted Death Wish 3. And he's, he's talking about how he, he was proud of Yoram for driving a, basically going, being, driving a hard bargain, but he had to make the, the Filipino distributor order Love Streams to get Death Wish 3. So it's just funny. He's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, I'm very proud to say that this is the first time Cassavetes has ever played in, in the Philippines. But it's, it's just, it's just wild to think that because they wanted a Bronson, you know, they wanted Death Wish 3. But yeah, if you, back in, back in that time, if you were a distributor, you owned a movie theater chain in the Philippines, you wanted Bronson. You also had to program John Cassavetes. We'll never, we'll never forget that in the seventies, if you wanted the other side of midnight, you had to take on the sci-fi film that Fox released. So it's happened forever. That, that's, that's true. If you wanted the Sidney Sheldon adaptation, you had to get Star Wars. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Fox, that. Fox basically made the deal with, uh, the, with uh, the distributors. They were like, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll give you... We have the, they had this very big-name slate. Of course, it's stuff that now you have no idea about, but you had to take Star Wars. Wow. That's amazing. That is. It is... And, you know, of course, now we're in a position for which Netflix has the sequel to Knives Out and it plays for one week because that's just how broken the market is. I'm sorry. I'm still very mad about that. I'm very, which is funny. I'm very angry about Netflix for how they played that. I still saw the movie, I will point out. We bring up how Cassavetes was brought to canon, at least to make love strings. But you also had uh, Jean-Luc Godard with his adaptation of sorts of King Lear, as well as I, I think the most interesting out of the three, out of the three, or the uh, the number of high name artists would be uh, Godfrey Reggio's uh, for Pawakatsi, the second film of the Katsi trilogy, which really doesn't feel like I didn't really put the two together until I watched uh, Electric Boogaloo. And I recognize like the the frame from it, and I'm like, oh, holy shit, that that's a canon film. It like it really doesn't. It's like Pavakazzi is such an outlier out of the entirety of the uh, '80s canon output. Like going back to how they're trying to put like more uh, more art house or more yeah yeah that yeah that's it art house films, and they let Godfrey Reggio make another film in what would eventually be the Katsi trilogy over the next 20 plus years. You don't really see that happening too much nowadays. 
at, unless you go to something like A24 or one of the major miners studios. Canon under Golden Globus, I, I will say, and this is actually, there's, I, I, I'm, I, of course, I have a great amount of respect for Roger Ebert, and mm-hmm. I love his writing. He, he wrote a great, almost diary, I would say, of the Cannes Film Festival in, in, uh, in the, in the eighties, I think it was in 80, 87. Yes. Yeah. 87 can. It's called two weeks in the midday sun. And in there, he, he, he says it as well. So <laughs> it's that Canon really took more chances than anyone else. There were so many movies that, you know, the major, major studios would have, would have shot down that, that Canon did. And that's, that's how movies like, well, I, I, I can speak definitely for love streams um, mm-hmm. that Cassavetes came to Canon because no one else, <laughs> no one else wanted to work him. He was very famous for being difficult to work with and Canon really left him alone. And he had the nicest things to say about Canon, even, even though they did re- butcher his video cut of the movie, but he, I mean, if his health hadn't gone so bad, he was, he, he had sequel, like a, a follow-up in the works that he was going to do for Canon. But Robert Altman, that was still a period in Robert Altman's career where he was still kind of recovering from Popeye and adapting a lot of stage plays. And he wanted to make Bull for Love and Canon would do it when no one else did. And you think of how, in the end, the the King Lear that came out for Canon ended up really kind of making fun of Canon and feeling like a joke at Canon's expense when you watch it. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is Godard is the one who approached canon to do that he he brought the project to them because he knew that they were willing to work with people but a lot of it is because canon golden globus they really wanted to become a major studio and they were really kind of taking very fast steps to get there and building up to that and but the thing was their way of making movies they made movies that sold well around the world they kind of this product that did very well on cable very well in in video stores but critics, it was never going to do well with critics. <laughs> Anything with the Canon stamp was kind of coming in with, a, you know, already a bit of a some marks against it. You know, the scale kind of tipped because, well, you know, it's that's <laughs> these are entertaining movies, but they're not going to they're not they're not going to they're not going to get great reviews. I think because that that sort of quest they had for legitimacy and to sort of please the qu- critics. To rev up the, the stigma they had, and that is unfair because. Again, they did have some they had some interesting films, not just, you know, the art house stuff. I mean, I think The Last American Virgin is one that it's really held up because it's so raw and honest. It's getting like a high end release. I want to say from MVD. I, I saw something on Dawn of the Discs. Yeah, it's getting it, its due. A number of canon films are either going under like a serious re-evaluation or just a, a sort of fondness for how ridiculous some of their output was more, more so than others. Cause I'm, I'm looking at like, I watch going bananas in preparation for this cast. I appreciate that. It It's one of those where honestly, you can probably not make it today with, with uh, the kind of stereotypes that they throw in there. Well, all of my prep, because I, when Austin started talking about the uh, the canon films, like Guide to the Canon Films, I had never heard of them. So my my thought was, canon to what? Uh, I started looking into it, and the, like, 
uh, started by like looking at a wiki list of like, well, let's see if I've seen any of these things. And then yeah. just going, wow, these they had to sort it by era. And these lists are incredibly long. Uh, yeah, it turned it turns out I had I'd seen America 3000 via my friend Peter. Hey, Peter. I had seen Over the Top, also via Peter. And, uh, of course, Austin here told me that Masters of the Universe was one. So I'm like, oh, that's an excuse to watch that. <laughs> Masters of the Universe is really so fascinating in retrospect, too. Yeah, Masters of the Universe was one that I remember seeing on, um, like, yeah, again, video store shelves. I was fascinated by it. I finally got a chance to uh, to watch it. It's on HBO Max right now. I think I was like live tweeting it. You were. But yeah. And I think one of my comments was I guess setting part of it in the modern world is a great way to keep your budget down. <laughs> and uh, having said that, everything is very like all the costumes and uh, props they use are actually quite elaborate, uh, except for Skeletor. <laughs> like he sticks out like a sore thumb. So I guess if I if there's a question here, like what have you done research on that one? Oh, yeah, that one's a that one's one. of That's a fun one, because that's also in the second book. I think it's one of the maybe the second largest chapter after the American Ninja films. But oh, wow. I talked to a lot of people who were involved with that. And there's there's a lot of a lot to the history of that movie, because it's that's another project that was brought to canon. It wasn't something that. Was you know a sort of fe- one of a Menachem Golan fever dream like where so many of these start. This this was a movie that Mattel had actually had sort of seen the writing on the wall that the end of the Masters toy line the the kids were sort of aging out and to kind of keep up with success and the sort of I think a lot of it was the like they're competing with Star Wars toys. Yeah, <laughs> they needed they thought they needed a movie to to do that and they wanted a movie that would appeal to the kids the young boys primary i would guess who had grown up on the he-man cartoon and sort of be the next step sort of be something that if you're getting that ne- next age you wouldn't be suddenly as embarrassed i guess like oh yeah. that's baby stuff i'm not into he-man anymore i'm i'm old so they had spent a few years developing that that actually had start went through a few places you would look at some of the earliest versions of the script were with at one with Warner Brothers on with Warner Brothers cover sheets. But Ed Pressman, they they sought out Ed Pressman, who was of course has produced so many great movies, but the most relevant to this was the Conan movies. They grabbed him and they attached the director and they attached Dolph Lundgren, who I'll argue no human being to have ever walked the earth was the more like more physically like ready to play He Man than Dolph Lundgren in the mid nineteen eighties. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. He's just he's just perfect there. So this was already all packaged and studios were basically not interested. This was the time where I mean Canon was buying up Marvel properties for, you know, less than 100 grand a pop. Oh, that's that's something to think now, but Canon was offered the entire Marvel like superhero catalog. Oh my god. Or less like for very very low seven figures. We're we're talking you know, a million and change. And they said, no, 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 no. Like, we'll just take Spider-Man and Captain America because there's no movie potential in the others. Wow. Can you can you imagine (laughs) the alternate universe where Disney buys the entire canon catalog just to get the Marvel, uh, the Marvel properties back? 
Right. I mean, they they they, they screwed up the rights to Spider Man for a long time. If you wonder why, yeah, yeah, that's that's directly due to Menachem <laughs> making making deals that deals at Marvel, but in the mid '80s. But yeah, anyways, I'm 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 getting off course. This was this was a time when making a movie based off a toy or comic book or basically something that was looked at as a children's property was considered insane. So none of the studios wanted to do it. So they wrote the script, you know, you had Ed Bressman, you had all these great storyboards. You had um, Bill Stout working with uh, Mobius, (laughs) the comic, a brilliant comics creator to do costume designs and things like that. And, David O'Dell, who had just written The Dark Crystal for Jim Henson, doing all the world building and writing the, sc- the first draft of the script and things like that. And I love seeing these early like story, like concept art and scripts. And you can see like the Jack Kirby influences like very strong in them. It's it's such a cool thing. But they took it to the studios and like, we want to make this film for for 24 million. And it, they probably could have done what they wanted to do with that. And everybody said no so it just basically came up to bidding and it went down to canon and one of the major studios the major one of the major studios had bid 16 million canon bid 16 and a half and so they went with canon <laughs> and so it was already one quarter less of the budget than they had planned on when they had sort of set out to come up with the whole idea that we see on screen so so what we see is already that plus what canon was sort of slowly bleeding as they as they made it but yeah it's that's a movie that oh i am just i get i, I get excited talking about the history <laughs> in the, the master universe movie because it is so is so goofy it's actually a movie at the end they they were taking so long and taking to the last minute canon wanted to cut it back and mm-hmm. so finally they were literally there they're like you have till midnight on this night to shoot mm-hmm. and Oof. they had one of canons you know one of the they had one of their you know, tough guys there, they literally waiting to like shut off the shut off the power at the soundstage where they were shooting at <laughs> when the clock struck midnight. So you get the great sort of the fight. If you see the fight at the end, it it looks pretty minimal because they're the you know He-Man and Skeleton swords collide, and then suddenly it's everything goes black, and it's just He-Man and Skeletor fighting in front of color of a color wheel. Basically, <laughs> it looks like a very a music video and that's because like that they canon had pulled the plug and everyone went home except for the people who had agreed to stay after for a couple hours so they could at least get some footage for a fight to put in the movie wow so they were shooting with you know less less than 10 people to get that last fight just in secret basically they didn't want they didn't want canon to find out that's incredible it's funny you can't help but look at masters of the universe and think you know a couple years later uh, a similar situation would happen where a property was brought up and finally one of the smallest studios picked it up and they wound up making an absolute mint on it with Ninja Turtles. Absolutely. You're 100% correct there. It's, 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 it's almost like that's the successful version of that. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I really am. I've got to ask you, you know, we, we, we allude to the unproduced projects with Spider-Man because, of course, they never got to make that. What 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 is what's one of the projects that you really wish had gotten off the ground that maybe people don't know about? There there are a lot of them, and there are more and more that I keep finding, which is 
crazy to think. I've been I've been collecting ads. I've been collecting Canon catalogs. I've been collecting varieties, Hollywood Reporters, Screen International issues that I can get my hands on. And it's hard to find these because a lot of these were thrown away. I mean, it's the same as anyone who collects any comp, like older comics or magazines. People just didn't think to save these things, especially when you're talking about a catalog. But um, yeah, some of these are pretty wild. I've been working to talk to people who whose names were attached to see if it was just a in a lot of cases it was to to canon which it was just a title and some art that one of their artists came up with and that was all of the movie that existed because they pre-sold them they would take these out to the trades and since we are talking about um master universe one of the things that when when masters and mattel were working together on or, or mattel and canon were working together on on that movie and things were going really well they were in preliminary preliminary talks about making a barbie movie oh my <laughs> and it wasn't a movie set in barbie's world like that that's that's the biggest thing you gotta you gotta understand it wasn't gonna be where barbie and ken were main characters or anything like that it was going to be about a barbie doll that could come to life and it was going to be a barbie doll that belonged to a girl who was unpopular in high school and she would take this doll with her to school and it would come to life like in her locker and give her advice on how to be more popular, which just sounds <laughs> absolutely horrible. But mm -hmm. knowing canon, like you, it would have been a terrible special effect too. it would have been some sort of green screen where this Barbie doll would the girl would pull the Barbie doll out of her packet like bag and put it on her desk and it would turn into Bo Derek or Vicky Barrett or something. And yeah, so that's one that's I kind of really fascinates me just because everything I've ever read about it, it just sounds like it could have been a just real train wreck. <laughs> and that's super timely with what's coming next year. So, absolutely. Uh, yes. Which that sounds fantastic. So, yeah, that that is one that I'm endlessly fascinated by. That's funny because uh, didn't I see on the list of Canon films, uh, Canon distributed films, Mannequin? Yes, so Mannequin bought and distributed bought the distribution rights for Canon in some territories, except mm -hmm. for in the U.S., uh, which is where it was a huge hit. So they bought it everywhere. It didn't I see. do well. So it's just funny because Canon, we're very proud to say they distributed and they brag about distributing this hit, but they actually didn't distribute it anywhere. It was a hit, unfortunately for them. Oh, that's that's funny. I have to ask you, you know, what would you say is your favorite film if you had one or can you even name one? Oh, I mean, I, I if you if you ask me for a favorite, I can I can I can do that. Um, people ask me for a top five and that's really hard because uh -huh. once I get yeah. past my favorite one, I could easily give a top. Tw it's hard. To, it's hard to limit down past like a top 20. There's so many. <laughs> but what's your favorite? Let's, let's go with that one. Revenge of the Ninja. Yeah, that's just the perfect one. It's it's the one that I'm it both because it's it straddles to me. It straddles the line of being this kind of silly B movie, but also being a really good action movie. And it does it just it does bad hits that balance so perfectly. Canon in in one movie, but also on a nostalgia point, that's the movie that at least in my video store when I was you know around a little older than like somewhere in my children's age ages. We go into the action section and the martial arts movies or the ninja movies, all they all got lumped together, were on the bottom shelves of the uh, of the action section. So they were at my eye level 
And I very distinctly remember seeing that cover every time I went in and looking at it and, you know, kind of asking my dad to rent it. And <laughs> it's so it, and it's a movie that once I could rent movies, I, I rent it over and over again. It was just, yeah, I, I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what, if, if you guys have <laughs> what you would say were your favorites. So if I can throw that question back at you. I, uh, I'm going to go with the Apple just because it is such a dear, intimate project. And it is, it is wild. It is unique. It is beautiful. And I just, I love it. Uh, for me, I, I second with Austin, uh, the Apple. I'm, I'm proud to say that I own the Apple on Blu-ray. Um, thanks to, uh, Kino Lorber, but like it, like, it is one of those projects where you can see like the earnestness behind it all. And yet the execution does come off as a little silly, a little campy, but you can't help but smile the entire time because gosh, darn it. They're trying their best for me. It's probably uh, America 3000 of the few I've seen just because it has memories of watching it in a group setting where we all get to kind of throw out like MST 3k, like, you know, jokes at it. And yeah, so it's, it's mostly the memory for me for that one. It was also funny, like in the documentary to see the, uh, the actress basically set fire to her only copy. <laughs> but yeah, it's that one for me. And I think then the, the, the question I would want to go out on for this cast is, um, what would, uh, what, what's, uh, what's looming ahead on the books? Uh, how is progress going on volume three and so on and so forth? Yeah. Um, volume three is moving steadily along. It's there's going to be a there is going to be a, also people longer wait between the, between two and three than there was between one and two. Mostly because I had I was already working on two when I found a publisher for the first one, so I had a head start. But it's moving steadily. It's I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I'm, I've got some interviews that I am excited excited to to include, and I'm. Hoping to snag a few people that I wasn't able to get to before, but finally will be able to include to give canon stories that I think really need to be in these. But yeah, it it's it's moving ahead, and I'll, I'll definitely keep keep updating on the progress on on Twitter and Facebook and such. Um, once we get once it gets closer, I'll, I can I'll, I will be sure to let people know. Sounds great. It's been a real pleasure having you and. I do want to point out this episode, of course, we re we're recording a week after the death of uh, Albert Pune, who uh, will be a factor in volume three for uh, one of a, a film I just love so much. Good old Cyborg. And I just I, I would I'd be remiss if we didn't note that in this cast. Uh, just a timestamp here. I'm really looking forward to it. It's Austin. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, a true joy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Where can we find your stuff? Like anything else you'd like to promote or like, you know, socials, all that good stuff? Yeah, you I mean, social wise, you can find me. It's at Canon Film Guide on on Twitter and, and Facebook. That's 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 all that's all that's where that's the only the only two places I am. But everything I do, I, I, I post up there. Awesome. We, we will provide a link to uh, on the show notes about that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And yeah I'm yeah, always yeah. happy to answer any Canon questions or anything like that. <laughs> If, if listeners have them. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been the Omniplex. Thank you again, Austin, for joining us.
Our opening and closing music is Glasses by Jonathan Colton using a Creative Commons 3.0 license. You can tweet at us. We are at The Omniplex on Twitter. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Omniplex Podcast. Have a question or suggestion for the show. Our email is theomniplexpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you know, find us wherever. <laughs> and we're, of course, at um, theomniplex.org for all our endeavors. And uh, coming up next, we will have our Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes, and uh, this one's going to be a little different. All I can say is uh, we'll be going back to some of our our roots from from the podcast. And uh, I get to play a very special part in all of this. All right. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll get we'll, we will get to that next time. Till then, see y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye. Farewell. So much to say, I forget to start. There goes a dance, as it passes. Forget to fail and fall apart. It's okay. I like you in glass. Within this unsuspecting city, History's greatest experiment creates tomorrow's greatest superhero, Spider-Man, the movie. A live-action spectacular directed by Joe Zito, based on the characters created by Stan Lee.